today we're going to talk about gender equality today for a sustainable tomorrow for International Women's Day, which is coming up on the 8th of March. And when I first saw this theme, uh, I felt like I was really clueless to how, you know, the climate crisis has affected women. Uh, I couldn't quite grasp how it was more damaging for women. And I guess having a little chat with you really educated me about it. Yeah, so, so the climate crisis is one of um, all sorts of things come into the climate crisis. Mental health is one, um, and I could talk about that for hours, but equality is another, and gender equality particularly. So the climate has a massively, the climate crisis has a massively disproportional effect on women and girls. And we can go into a little bit about why that is on this podcast today, but um Essentially, one of the, I think one of the most shocking figures is that 80% of climate refugees, that's people displaced from their home as a result of the climate emergency, are women and girls, which is shocking. It's absolutely shocking. And it just, I think, highlights in one statistic why and how this is a gender issue. How has that happened that climate refugees are more likely, much more likely to be women than men? It's for a whole host of reasons. And I think... We can we can go into there are just so many reasons. It really comes down to I guess equality, access to resources, and also the the women and girls' place in society. So for example, women and girls are much less likely to survive a natural disaster. That's a, an extreme weather event. And we know they're happening more and more with climate change. And if you've read the IPCC report, the most recent report on the effects of climate change, even if we keep to the hugely optimistic 1.5 degrees of warming, which at the moment I think looks unlikely, then we're going to have devastatingly large numbers of, of um, increases in terms of uh, increases in, in um, uh, extreme weather events. So the numbers of extreme weather events are going to go up, even if we keep to the most optimistic targets on climate change. And if more women and girls are dying than men in that, that's shocking. Now, the reason for that, really interestingly, um, can be negated when economic and social status is equated for. So essentially in, in groups of people where women and men have equal status, equal access to resources, have political, social, economical rights that are equal, then women and men die in equal numbers in natural disasters. But in most of the world, if not all of the world, that's not the case. So what we see is that women and girls have fewer, I mean, there's so many factors, but they have fewer accesses to resources. Predominantly, particularly in the global south and the developing world, women's roles are one of caring, they're one of, of, of looking after the home, of acquiring fuel, food, water, and all of those things make them much, much more vulnerable to climate change. So if there's a natural disaster and you haven't been privileged enough to have the education, even basic reading, to be able to understand what to do in that situation, you're automatically more at risk. If you have more caring roles, if you're looking after elderly relatives, young people, anybody who's unwell, and of course you've got people who get more unwell as the climate um, emergency develops, those with diseases such as asthma and things like that will be exacerbated by the climate emergency. So all these things place women at a much, they're much less mobile, much less likely to flee and to flee quickly or to see the signs that they need to move earlier. And that's not to do with women um, intrinsically having fewer resources, that's societal and economic um, pressures that are put in place that mean that women are less likely to survive these events. And 
I think what's really interesting is that actually this women aren't being it, represented in making the decision the decisions for leadership in communities and globally women are massively underrepresented so if we're thinking about how to manage the climate emergency and what we should be doing we have a group that's hugely more vulnerable than women and girls to the effects of climate change but they're not having a seat at the table in the same in the right proportions they're not being represented in the right proportions they're not able to make those decisions so we have decisions being made about the most vulnerable group without as uh, well they're underrepresented in the decision making process the socioeconomic status of women is also deeply affected by climate change because most of the world's poorest are women so women are being cut off from you know basically achieving as much as their counterpart and this negatively affects them when there is a natural disaster or, or you know I mean it's not really natural because it's been created by us in a way but when climate change strikes it's striking the world's poorest which happens to be women people with mental health needs people with disabilities would that be a way that we can hugely restructure these communities yeah it's a really interesting question so absolutely so there's 1.2 billion people who are technically hungry in the world 70 percent of those are women and girls so again it's hugely disproportionate women and girls are far more likely to be hungry than men and of the world's poor those living below the poverty line 70% of the world's poor are women and girls. So again, hugely uh, overrepresented in poverty. Women and girls are much more likely to be poor and much more likely to be hungry. And that makes them much more vulnerable to climate change. Of course, mental health, where does mental health come into all this? Well, as we've discussed in a previous podcast, um, mental health is is puts people at a more vulnerable position. And if you're more vulnerable, you're more vulnerable to climate change. Much like with COVID, we see that those who have fewer resources who are more vulnerable are more vulnerable in most settings, COVID included and in climate change. So to answer your question, how can we restructure societies? Well, I think it really helps to understand how many societies are structured. So in societies where women and girls are predominantly poorer, uh, the global south or what used to be called developing countries, the role of women and girls is often to do things like gather fuel, to provide food and to provide water. So to do those things, they have to do that before that often they can engage in things like education, engage in politics, anything that we would consider part of their human rights and also able to um, help them educate themselves but also be a part of this conversation be part of how to get their voices heard in response to the planning and the response for climate and ecological emergency which is what we're talking about what ends up happening is in many communities as deforestation happens for example and wildfires um wood for example is further from rural dwellings so that means that women and girls are having to spend more of their day more of their time walking further to get fuel to run the household and as i say often that is a woman's role in many societies or many rural poorer societies in the global south so then you have women who are spending up to 20 hours a week doing this considered basic task this fundamental task to get fuel for heating and you know uh, basic their caring roles that again fall to women. So if women and girls are walking further, that leaves a lot less time for doing other things like engaging in politics, like attending school or other forms of learning. And it also makes them really vulnerable. Women are at far more risk of sexual violence or other violence when they're walking further, if they're walking hours from home. It puts them at physical harm, having to do that length of manual labour sometimes. 
And that's really, you know, that has a devastating impact on their ability to free up time to do other things. The same thing with water. Water scarcity or contaminated water is a massive issue with climate change. Climate change and biodiversity loss, which we see as two sides of the same thing, have a big impact on water. So if water is less available and more contaminated, then again, that takes more time for women and girls to obtain the water for the family to use. And again, that has less impact. That means that there's less time for them to have um, time to engage in political discussion and education and other things we need to help hear the women's voice when we're making these decisions. So there's some really quite fundamental things here. And it's not about, I really think it's not about restructuring communities. I think that would be very harmful to go in to communities that we're not part of and say, you're doing this wrong. What we need to be doing is finding ways to work with women and girls to hear their voice about what is happening and how to help them so they can have more of a voice. And that's about being flexible. That's about providing finance initiatives as a global um, response to this that are flexible enough and engage with women and girls so that they can use them they can have some independence they can help discussion and it's about using not just women and girls voice it's also indigenous peoples who have a huge amount of knowledge about the natural world that's being lost often hearing about people in communities and trying to influence policy that's affecting the climate and ecological emergency but from those people who are on the front lines effectively who are already feeling the really devastating impacts of climate change. Um, so essentially women are engaging so heavily in household chores and maintaining the family, they're missing out on education and the ability to gain wealth. Yeah, absolutely. I think also it's worth saying that in the developing world, the majority of those involved in agriculture are women. So women in, in rural, poorer communities in the global south tend to be the ones who are farmers. And it's often subsistence farming. So it's farming for them to feed their families and often the excess is sold. And that is the source of income as well as the way to feed the family. So in many African countries, 90%, over 90% of those engaged in agriculture are women. Um, 80, 45 to 80 percent. I know that's a large amount. That's what the UN quote, but 45 to 80 percent of all food production in developing countries is by women. So women make up the majority of the global poor, but they're also making up the majority of the global south farmers. And again, we're talking low level um, in terms of production. We're talking about small amounts here. We're not talking about mass industry farming. The majority of farmers in the, in the developing world are women growing food for their family and a bit extra provide an income for their family and what that means is as we're having as climate change develops and we're having more droughts we're having much it's having a massive devastating impact on farming and agriculture so as well as what you were just saying Ella about women spending so much more time on caring and household responsibilities also the financial aspect the income is being devastated both by climate change, but also biodiversity loss, because as we have that biodiversity loss, um, it has big impacts on soil and land use. So what happens is, for example, if you're taking away a lot of the biodiversity in an area, it can make it much more prone to flooding, to droughts, and then you, it makes it much harder to farm. So it's not just about the sort of responsibility in the home, it's also about the way that econo the economic landscape is set up puts women at much higher vulnerability for the devastating impacts of climate change. It's quite overwhelming, isn't it? It is, and actually we haven't spoken about one of the biggest things, which is migration. Would it be okay to spend a few minutes talking about that? I'd love to speak about migration. Could you just give like a quick definition of what you mean by migration and what it means in terms of women and girls? 
So migration as a result of climate change is a massive issue. So what happens is we have these extreme weather events that we know are becoming more and more frequent. And as I said earlier, even in the most optimistic of forecasts for the climate, we're going to have a lot more devastating extreme weather, weather events, things like cyclone storms, droughts, wildfires and so on. What can happen is when an area is devastated, people have to move. They have to migrate and it can either be internal within a country so for example moving to a, from a rural area to an urban area or it can be international which is far more dramatic but what can happen with those instances is people are at far more risk for all sorts of things so when you move even internally within a country there's an awful lot of non-economic losses as we call them so a loss of sense of identity you lose your community you might if you're for example if you're a woman with caring responsibilities you might lose a flexible work pattern for example that works around your caring duties you might also lose somebody who's helping you with um, childcare or care for elderly relatives for example or those with uh, health needs so you're losing your entire support network often and quite commonly people moving from rural areas to urban are moving to more informal dwellings so possibly slums or something like that so that comes to a whole host of issues all that put you at far increased risk of poor mental health as well as difficulty socioeconomically, struggle to get income if you're in a new area, that kind of thing. Now, as well as that, you have the risk of having to move internationally. So we're talking about, um, for example, moving to refugee camps because of climate disasters, climate-fueled wars, for example, where areas are becoming devastated. So you're having a lot of people who are moving from one area to another and living in refugee camps because either directly or indirectly of climate emergency. Now what happens particularly to women and girls is in areas like refugee camps or displaced people camps, women and girls are at massively increased risk from all sorts of things. One is from sexual violence. When I was doing my global health BSc as part of my medical degree, I remember we were learning about the uh, displaced people's camps or I can't remember now, but it was um, from one of the natural disasters that had just happened. This is about 10 years ago. And we were talking about with a with an um, aid organisation about how they plan their refugee camps. And initially, they'd all planned to have toilets at the edge of the camp. The idea being that massively increased risk of waterborne diseases, things such as cholera that can be life threatening in that kind of setting. Um, and they wanted to have the toilets, understandably, as far away as possible from where people were eating and drinking to keep the water clean. But what happened was there was a massive rise in sexual violence because in the night when it was dark, women would move, women and girls would move by themselves from an area of high um, population where there are lots of people around to the edge of the camp where they couldn't be seen. So women and girls are at huge risk um sexual violence in those scenarios also if you think about um uh, uh maternity care um you're at a much higher risk if you're displaced when you're pregnant or when you're close to labor when you have a new baby because you have higher caring roles and you're less mobile and you're um, more vulnerable in terms of health generally and all these things are harder to access if you're in displaced person camp or even if you're just in a new place where you don't have the support network and you don't know, I don't know if you don't know the language or you don't have people around you to support with those things. So actually women are at a much higher risk. Men are at risk in those situations too, but I think women are recognised by the UN and internationally as being at far higher risk um, from climate change, from biodiversity loss, from migration than others. And just to put it into context, how, because I, I wouldn't know how big a refugee camp is because you're saying these toilets are they're on the end just to kind of give us some a concept of how big they are 
how many people might be there how big would they be in terms of I don't know like kilometers or like football pitches or something like that we're talking about very large, often semi-permanent areas um, where displaced people are living. And I, I just to be clear, you know, people can be in displaced people camps for all sorts of reasons. And often it's the indirect effects of climate change rather than the direct that cause people to be internationally displaced. So by that, I mean, you know, if you've got disruption to the water source or if you're having um, uh, you know, um, weather events, extreme weather events, and you're causing large groups of people to have to move um, internationally, um, that's when you're going to have these large camps. But they're large. And they're big. We're talking thousands of people. And they're a mixture of different people who've been all moved to one camp or they're all from the same disaster? Generally, I think they tend to be from, from movement from a specific event or area, but again, not really my specific area. OK, so women are just exceptionally vulnerable when they're displaced and moved to a different area. And as you're saying, there's going to be potentially a language barrier where they can't seek support, they can't find support. And I'm guessing that there's not enough people to provide security, to provide safety within the camps. I think it's just that if you're, as with COVID, the climate and ecological emergency just puts so many more people who are already vulnerable at risk. It kind of preys on vulnerabilities. For example, with the Royal College of Psychiatrists, we work with people who have mental health disorders or who are carers or um, relatives or friends of those with mental health disorders. You know, if you have even a very well-controlled mental health disorder, if you're, you know, doing well, your recovery is going well, and you're on a long-term medication or in long-term therapy to keep you well, then actually, if you imagine, if your home is flooded, for example, that's the commonest that we have in the UK, effect of climate change at the moment, then what's that going to do to you? Well, if you have to leave your home, right, um, and move somewhere else, even if it's in with friends or in a temporary accommodation, you're going to have to find a new GP. You're probably going to have to find a new mental health service if you're moving more than a few miles away. Um, how is that going to affect your mental health? Well, actually, it could be devastating. You know, are you going to be able to get your medication? Is that going to be your priority if your home is flooded and all your possessions have to be salvaged or replaced and you have to sort out the, your accommodation that's been flooded? Well, it's going to have a massive effect. You're going to have to be hugely organised and have an awful lot of support for it not to have an impact on your mental health. And even if you are able to maintain outpatient appointments, regular GP reviews, medication, therapy sessions, whatever is keeping you well, then it's still going to have a direct impact on your mental health. So, for example, here in the UK, you don't have to think about the global south. Here in the UK, of those who have been flooded, had flood water in their homes, at one year, 30% from the studies we have, have probable depression. That's clinical depression. So that's moderate to severe depression with low mood, often what we call biological markers of depression. So feeling low, struggling with sleep and appetite, struggling with concentration. And how are you going to maintain your source of income, so the working or your caring duties, if you're depressed and you're sorting out a flood in your home? Equally, at one year after having flood water in your home in the UK, 28.3% of people have an anxiety disorder. That's massive. That's nearly a third. Again, how are you going to be working, caring, all the things that we need to be doing to keep well when you have an anxiety disorder and, and, and you're sorting out a flood in your home? And 36% of people who've had flood water in their home one year later have PTSD. That's full-on post-traumatic stress disorder. That's flashbacks, nightmares, feeling jumpy, feeling on edge, have a diagnosed PTSD. So what I'm saying is that even in the UK, 
not even when we're thinking about refugee camps or the global south or areas that have become dramatically flooded that affects the groundwater like in Bangladesh. We're talking so the, the drinking water like in Bangladesh, we're talking about in the UK, we're talking about devastating impacts. And if you are a woman and therefore more likely to have caring responsibilities, then actually having depression, anxiety or PTSD is going to often have an even bigger impact on you and your family than if you're a man. And that's not to undermine or play down the impacts on of these things on men. They're also huge. But actually, if you're more likely to have caring responsibilities, then it's going to have a, a massive impact. And the point of thinking about climate change from a gender lens, from a, a women and girls lens on International Women's Day is, of course, not to, to take away the impacts on non-women and girls, but it's to recognise that we will not get to a place where everybody is equal and everyone is protected from, from climate and ecological emergency without taking everyone into account, both in the impacts, but especially in terms of in our planning. We have to have a, a decision-making process about how to manage the climate and ecological emergency that fairly represents everyone who is affected. Indigenous peoples, women, girls, young people, older adults, those with mental health disabilities, sorry, those with mental health illnesses, those with physical disabilities and health, physical health issues. Everyone needs to be represented, otherwise we're going to get it wrong. Thank you so much for sharing that with us. Is there anything else that you we think we can touch on? I feel like everything that you've said so far has been amazing. So the UN, in preparing for today, I was having a little look at the latest um, UN figures and the latest yeah. UN papers on gender and women. And the UN is already saying that right now, this isn't looking to the future, global warming is one of the leading clauses of world hunger and of reduced access to water. I think it's really important that we see the climate and ecological emergency not as something that's going to affect us in the future and not as something that affects people over there in the global south or wherever. This is something which is already affecting us now, today. It's going to get worse, but it's affecting us now and today. And I think it's also important that we remember that it affects everyone, but that women and girls everywhere are more at risk. And actually, with that in mind, I think it's tempting to get a bit depressed by it. But what I'd encourage everybody listening to do is to see what they can do on a, on a local small level to make a difference, because it does make a difference. And actually, you know, these small changes help us to feel less overwhelmed, but they also help to make a change. And it's just so important that we don't feel powerless, overwhelmed, uh, feel like our actions don't make a difference, because they do. And I think actually, you know, this International Women's Day, we just need to remember that most things are a social justice issue, but climate change is, and climate change and gender absolutely is. So the UN have said achieving gender equality in the empowerment of all women and girls in the context of climate change, environmental and disaster risk reduction policies and programmes. They're discussing the fact what you were talking about earlier is that women just simply don't have access to the same resources as men and they're not they're not thought of they're not a contributing factor in you know these these policies and these programs that help people survive a disaster yeah exactly and i think so, so the big buzzwords when i was at cop 26 um in october or november um the, the buzzwords at the moment are mitigation and adaption 
those are the two kind of buzzwords that sort of being talked about in terms of how we manage the, the um, climate and ecological emergency. Mitigation basically just means reducing emissions. Um, and you know, we could have a whole other podcast talking about how we're going about that, what we should be doing, where we're getting it wrong, where we're getting it right. And adaption is about reducing our vulnerability to climate change and increasing the resilience of key areas, things like water, agriculture, human settlements, making all of those things more resilient to climate change. And women are absolutely at the core of that. If we don't include them in the discussions about how we're going to adapt, we are not going to get anywhere. And it's frequently said we'll never have, um, we'll never get rid of poverty and have true equality unless we address gender equality. And it's the same thing with the climate. We're never going to, to have a reasonable and helpful response to the climate emergency. We're not going to be able to, you know, adapt and mitigate without women. The, the UN, with these two buzzwords, mitigation and adaption, the way that they're framing the response and how the response should be globally is with another two buzzwords, which is technology and financial uh, mechanisms, thinking that both of these things need to be thought about. So we need new tech or we need to be clever with our tech and we need to really think about how we're financing the response. And both of these are frequently framed as we have to get women and girls involved and not just involved by inviting them, actually making it possible. So we need to involve women. What needs to happen? How can the technology that we have be adapted or be provided to women and girls to help them with a climate emergency? And again, financial mechanisms, they have to be flexible enough to be adapted to women. If you've got women who majority of women in the world have caring responsibilities, then it's not enough just to provide the traditional, you know, nine to five or whatever models of financial mechanisms. It just isn't going to work. It's not working. We need something else. So these kind of buzzwords are what are being talked about on the sort of international stage around how we manage the climate and ecological emergency and women are being absolutely held at the core of it. What would be an alternative way of, of kind of financing without doing, as you say, the traditional nine to five, which isn't going to work for these communities? So it's about going to communities and seeing what works there. So there's all sorts of really clever um, financial mechanisms that can be used, often run by communities, often run by the individuals who would be who would be the most benefit from. So, gosh, there's all sorts of things, um, you know, ways to really work on a community level. So I think that's what it's about. It's about going to individual communities and actually recognising that what works in rural sub-Saharan Africa is going to be different to what works in urban uh, Delhi or something. You know, responses have to be adapted to the individuals who they're there to, to aid and actually making a decision that we feel is going to benefit everybody without discussion of those who it's meant to help isn't going to get anywhere. But, you know, part of the discussion, I guess the other thing is part of the discussion that was at COP from the Global South, um, the representatives from countries from the Global South, was a request for more financial aid. I mean, that's something that um, we don't necessarily have to get into the details of, but, you know, recognising climate change as the biggest threat to humanity in terms of survival, but in terms of health and mental health as well, is important. That's not a niche view that's recognised by the Lancet, by the UN, by the WHO. Climate change is a major issue and we have to deal with it. And the sooner and the better we deal with it, the better for all of us, the less expensive it will be. So freeing up the finances required by the global community is also essential. And it's not just the mechanism of delivering that money, but, but actually making sure that it's there is also important. Thank you so much for speaking with us today. It's just been so, so insightful in a, in a way that I just didn't think that these these huge percentages of 
women who are the most poor in the world, women go the most hungry, like it's just, and it's not even like slightly tilted towards women, it's like a, it's like the majority are women and it's just absolutely astounding to hear it. It's shocking, isn't it? It's absolutely shocking. Um, and you know, those aren't, as I say, those aren't niche statistics. You know, they're UN statistics or the WHO statistics. They're, they're what's happening. And it's shocking. It's absolutely shocking. But I really hope it doesn't feel overwhelming and despairing. I feel like I really want people to hear that as a call for action because there is action. There's lots being done. There's lots to get involved in. Yeah, absolutely. And people need to make a change right now, immediately, in any way that they possibly can the best thing you can do to make a change a positive change for climate the climate and ecological emergency is work out your carbon footprint and lots of you just google carbon footprint calculator there are loads available online work out what yours is see what the big contributors are and see what you can do to reduce it that you feel is possible you know it's much better to make the decisions that you feel work for you rather than to act out of guilt panic not be able to manage it and then give up so for example um when i was first learning about the climate and ecological emergency and the impacts on of health about a decade ago when i was doing my, my global health bsc um you know we had some teaching on the impact of of um animal farming and i decided i couldn't go vegan but i would re massively reduce my meat intake and i think at that point i was having you know some meat once or twice a month and that had the biggest impact on my on my carbon footprint compared to so many other things and that for me felt like a really easy change um it didn't miss it, it wasn't a problem and it had a massive impact on my carbon footprint if you're somebody who loves meat then fine no one's going to put you know force you to give that up but maybe i don't know the way you travel could be easier it might be that you prefer to walk or cycle to work and that's a change you want to make rather than driving for example so i think it's about choosing working out your carbon footprint choose something that actually matters to you that you feel is manageable and not overwhelming and make that change and feel good about it um this isn't about asking everyone to live in the woods and have a completely carbon zero existence um, but the other thing is get involved with your trust. If you're somebody working in NHS, get involved with your trust green plan. Every trust has to have one and they can have a real impact. Four to five percent of the planet's climate, uh, global emissions, um, carbon emissions, come from the healthcare sector. Four to five percent. And the biggest part of that is not what you think it would be. It's actually medication, creating medication and giving it out. And I think it's up to half of medication we prescribe as doctors isn't taken. So what does that mean? That means to be um, a climate conscious and sustainable psychiatrist, we should be asking the question, does this individual need the medication we're prescribing? Are they taking it? And if not, what can we give them? You know, what can we do instead, instead of providing this medication? We have a link, um, a leaflet, how to be a sustainable psychiatrist, top 10 tips of easily achievable things to do. Perfect. That sounds amazing. Thank you so much for coming on to speak with us today and just illuminating the entire issue. Yeah, I guess there's one more thing I want to say, which is I don't want men to men and boys to be excluded. You know, gender equality is about everyone being equal. It's not about this being just for women or that it's men or men's fault or anything like that. So I really want to include, encourage and include men and boys to be part of the discussion and part of the solution.